0: Australia Explained, keeping you on top of all things Down Under. In this episode of Australia Explained, we break down climate change, our experiences, our responses and our future. Hello everyone, my name is Tanya Ragusa. And I'm Vanessa De Grazia.
1: And welcome back to another episode of Australia Explained. We'd like to start by acknowledging that I'm recording this podcast on the lands of the Nagaru people and pay my respects to their elders past and present. Tanya is on Wurundjeri land today and also paying respects, of course. Yes, as per usual.
0: And we'd actually like to start off by just briefly celebrating our achievements on Australia Explained. So within the past week, we reached 1000 followers on Instagram, which... May not seem like a lot, but that's 1,000 people tuning in with us, following our posts and also trusting us as a news source, which is quite wild to think about. Um, But it's been a really, really fun journey and we've really appreciated your response to us.
1: Yeah, so much that we both bought a cake even though we're 2,000 kilometres apart and we both ate it. And if you haven't seen the video of that, go to our Instagram (laughs) reels and you will get to enjoy it. We (laughs) made sure it was the same cake so we were having the same experience
0: and we could enjoy (laughs) it together. Um, And I think 1,000 followers is quite a Um, significant moment for us because we're really starting to step up our production um, and our quality. Um, We've recently just expanded our team so we'd like to welcome Liam on board. You won't be hearing from Liam but you will be seeing a lot of his work uh, behind the scenes in terms of our audio and sound quality. Um, So welcome Liam and we appreciate your support with us as well. So let's get into the episode. This episode is inspired by the IPCC report that's been circulating lately. Um, This is the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change that has been established by the United Nations. And they um, release an annual report just looking at the state of climate change in our world.
1: Yeah, I saw so many people sharing this on social media and it seemed like every single news platform ever in existence covered it with identical headlines. I don't know if you felt the same. Um, and when these sorts of reports come out, people obviously turn their heads because they t- make some really serious allegations about climate change. And honestly, they're kind of scary. Yeah, and we don't want to sit here and talk too much about the
0: spooky stories of climate crisis and cause more anxiety than what's already floating around. But we will start off with a fact that really puts this whole thing into perspective. In the 30 years since the first IPCC report was prepared, we've released almost as much greenhouse gas emissions into the atmosphere as humans did throughout our
1: entire history up until 1990. This fact just boggles my mind because All of human history, the cavemen, the Egyptians, Mesopotamia, the Industrial Revolution, colonization, everything still made less emissions than we have in the past 31 years. Like 10,000 plus years of human history versus 31. It's insane. Wild. It's difficult
0: to comprehend. And this is the first report that the IPCC has strongly concluded that humans are to blame for around 1.1 degrees of global warming. And this may seem small, but that 1.1 degrees sets off a large and complex chain of ecological systems that are all related and are all impacted by even the most minuscule of changes. So it has had a huge impact.
1: This era of human influence upon the Earth is called the Anthropocene, and it's specifically defined by the fact that climate change is man-made. So we've entered a world where we're making such a difference on the Earth that they've given us our own name. (laughs) Okay, how about let's start with a bit of an overview on the climate sitch?
0: Yeah, um... I think many people associate climate change with warming temperatures and all that jazz. And the sort of vision that I get in my mind and perhaps other people might be seeing is like some post-apocalyptic scene where there are like fires raging everywhere and meteors crashing into the earth and, you know, heat waves sweltering. And I understand that in this case, it might actually be difficult to comprehend that climate change is happening, um, especially when we seem to be experiencing the same sort of seasonal patterns that we've always experienced, you know, hot and cold, summer, winter, a bit of rain, dry season. But climate change reminds me of one of my favourite sayings, which I've always, I guess, related to my life, but we can also relate it to the climate now, in that you don't see the small changes every day. But it is only after, I guess, a longer period of time that you're able to step back and notice what is different. And this completely relates to climate change.
1: Yeah, because you don't see 1.1 degrees warming every single day. But if you take a step back and analyse some of the larger climate trends, you can see how this has dramatically affected us over time. And of course, this looks very different between each country, hemisphere and area of the Earth.
0: Yeah, so we think it'll be helpful to contextualise climate change within Australia so that you all have a better understanding of how our land and how our climate is being targeted. It's not just some, you know, vague dystopian climate change world. We are
1: living through it every day, even though it doesn't seem like it. Yeah, exactly. And these are real lives... Real people, real stories. Um, Take, for example, the Great Barrier Reef. So the reef is the pride and joy of many Aussies, even myself. I'm not patriotic, but I love the reef. I connect with the symbol of the reef. Big reef fan. (laughs) So (laughs) when I think about the mass coral bleaching of the Great Barrier Reef, which has been caused by warmer water temperatures, it's led to a lot of unique marine species moving more towards the pole, so heading north or heading south. Um, but some of the effects that we don't think about but still affect us can be things such as changing populations of the fish and other marine species, um, as well as a drop to tourism because we've lost one of the most beautiful sights in the colourful and vibrant reef. Yeah, and
0: climate change is also witnessed within our struggling farming and agriculture industry, which we've started to pay a lot more attention to recently so in a good non-drought year, we typically export around three quarters of our crop and livestock production, which adds you know, a significant chunk to our national economy, our GDP, our revenue, things like that. But with drier temperatures and increasing drought, our whole agricultural landscape is altered and our farming industry is really doing it rough right now.
1: Yeah. And droughts have always happened, but they're happening more often and they're becoming more severe. And It's definitely not some sort of abstract consequence. Like you said, farmers are doing it really tough. And climate change is often stereotyped of being some inner city lefty issue. And I think this is kind of funny because it's the farmers and the people that work off the land that feel the environmental shift the hardest. Um, Australia-wide also, of course, we feel it. We have food shortages, we have poor quality produce in our supermarkets, we have rising prices of food. Um, So once again, while we might not notice these drier temperatures as a whole, uh, they have a detrimental effect over time. Yeah. And
0: perhaps one of the most obvious indicators of climate change in Australia, which we do see quite clearly, is our worsening bushfire seasons. And we don't need to remind anyone about the absolute tragedy that was the 2019 to 2020 bushfires that devastated most of the East Coast. But there were so many indirect consequences of this as well. So we know that it really um, hit regional and rural businesses and tourism hard and also our wildlife and um, our biodiversity too. So whilst we may not see the obvious climate change markers in our society, in our country, we can start to understand the indirect consequences of it and how it might be
1: affecting our everyday life. Yeah, and climate change is so varied. Um, In this episode, we're going to talk a lot about carbon emissions, even though it's not the only aspect of climate change. When we're talking through statistics and data and measuring climate change, it's definitely one of the easier points of data to talk about because you can clearly see how it's risen and how it's expanding rather than talking about all these different case studies like the reef and the fires and all that sort of thing. So um, there's such a range of climate change issues, what we just spoke about being a couple.
0: We're always hearing not enough is being done about climate change. So what actually is being done in Australia and around the world? So, international law time.
1: (laughs) This is your area of expertise. You can go wild with this one. Oh, I will. So... (laughs) <laughs> the cu- countries first started to care about climate change in just, just a little bit in 1992. And we had this thing called the Kyoto Protocol where everyone got together in Japan and were like, uh, this climate change thing its becoming a bit of a big deal. We should probably <laughs> do something about it. But alas, they did not do much. So not much at all happened until 2015 when the Paris Agreement was formed. And you might have heard about this. It was in the media a lot last year, which I'll get to in a moment. But essentially, countries agreed to work together to get global warming at least under 2 degrees, but they were aiming for 1.5. The agreement included China and the US, which were the big players. They're the world's biggest um, creators of carbon emissions and it involved individual countries having to create plans for how they would achieve this goal of getting warming under two degrees. It also said they were going to have conferences every five years to check how countries are going with the agreement.
0: Yeah, and the next one is this year. Um, it was pos- postponed because of the pandemic, but it is coming up soon. And basically the commitments made in Paris are said to be a failure because they have largely fallen short. So targets haven't been met and clearly climate change is still raging. But in some ways it has made a difference. Climate change is now a really important policy issue that citizens seem to value and that's a win and it is starting to play a larger role within federal elections as well.
1: Yeah, and I wanted to address something that's popped up this week in a uh, tweet from Scott Morrison, sorry. He said, We can't ignore the fact that the developing world accounts for two-thirds of global emissions and those emissions are rising. So unpacking this... It's absolutely true. So the developing world do account for a huge part of the world's carbon emissions and this is rising. But we have to take into consideration that developed countries such as Australia, the UK, France, etc., we've already had our economic boom. We've already had our periods where we had heaps and heaps of workers in factories and all of these sorts of jobs that created lots and lots of emissions. That's already happened. Developed countries need those booms to pull them out of poverty. For example, um, in the Paris Agreement, it's clearly set out that India has to eradicate poverty and reduce emissions alongside. So emissions is not necessarily the number one goal. Making sure people have food to eat and aren't dying from hunger and disease is the number one goal. So while Scott Morrison is right, there's definitely more at play there. Um, But he's not the only one to think this. The US under Trump actually withdrew from the Paris Agreement, which was the reason it was in the media so much last year, for that exact reason. And it brings up a good point about um, international laws in general. For example, the Paris Agreement was created, but in the end, countries don't have to do anything. They can do whatever they want. They have sovereignty over their own nations. In essence, It's kind of just an agreement that means nothing. (laughs) Yeah,
0: and I think that really goes to show that we have all these intergovernmental bodies and organisations but they can't actually enforce law. It's not law that we have to abide to. I think it's just more like a general set of recommendations that countries can agree to sign up on but you can also agree to drop out or not listen to them whatsoever. So who is actually governing climate change policy at the moment and who is going to lead our leaders in enacting effective climate change policy.
1: Yeah, and that failure in international government um, becomes really obvious when you're talking about issues that transcend borders, for example, climate change, for example, refugees, which we discuss in our refugee asylum seeker episodes, um, because it's really actually difficult to make countries work together because we just want to act in our own interests. Scott Morrison's also dropped some comments about China being the the biggest creator of carbon emissions, which they most definitely are. And this is in reference to our tensions with China at the moment and Scott Morrison genuinely just wanting to point the finger onwards, but if we're taking a step back, um, Australia produces one percent of the world's emissions. But it sounds like not much, but when you think about we only have one third of a percent of the world's people, it's actually a lot. So when you break down carbon emissions per person, we're actually the second worst in the world, only behind Saudi Arabia and. I don't want to be one point behind Saudi Arabia in anything. Yeah. And, (laughs) you know, it's a bit rich to talk about developing world's share of
0: emissions when we've got the silver medal for ruining the planet. (laughs) So I think we do need to recognise our own position in this issue as well.
1: All righty. So let's get to the big question. So many are demanding to know and People sharing that report on social media this week were often asking this question. What is Australia doing about climate change?
0: So when Australia signed onto the Paris Agreement, they agreed to reduce carbon emissions by 28% below what they were in 2005. And they set this target for 2030, which is only nine years away.
1: Don't say that. This is Liberal (laughs) Party.
0: I know. Wild. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you know, we we say 2030, 2050, but they're within our lifespan. And this was Liberal Party policy. So first of all, I think we need to debunk the notion that, you know, climate change is a Labor Party policy issue. Both parties focus on climate change just to different extents
1: and in different ways. Yeah, And we will so credit this, was- this to Scott Morrison, sorry to interrupt you, but um, Tony Abbott, uh, was very uh, like a non believer in climate change in lots of ways. Um, Scott Morrison has never denied climate change or anything like that.
0: Yeah. And lots argue that this 28% target wasn't enough. And scientists show that it needs to be more like a 50% reduction in our carbon emissions. And we need to aim for something called net zero carbon emissions by 2050. So this means that there's a balance between all the greenhouse gases we emit and all the greenhouse gases we take out of the atmosphere. So essentially, there's no new emissions being added because we're constantly removing them. The Labor Party, though, at the last election promised a 45% reduction, which is a bit more similar um, to the proposed amount by scientists.
1: Yeah, regardless of the difference between the parties, looking at how we're tracking with the target that we did agree to in the Paris Agreement, um, I checked out Australia on this thing called the Tr- the Climate Action Tracker, and it's in the show notes if you want to have a look. It's a pretty good report. It's honestly very seething. Um, we've been rated insufficient for a couple of reasons. So carbon emissions actually have decreased in the past year, but this is only because of the pandemic. It's not because of anything we did on purpose.
0: Yeah, and you might remember in our budget episode from last year, we talked about the Morrison government launching a gas-led recovery, so pumping a lot of money into the gas industry instead of investing in renewable energy. And Climate Tracker accuses the government of using the pandemic as a justification to support the expansion of the gas industry, quote, Boom, but also... (laughs) but also to um, pursue corporate interests as well, in a way. And Climate Tracker points out that commitments to renewable energy has actually dropped to less than they were in 2017, which is
1: pretty troubling. Yeah. And unsurprisingly, Australia's continued commitment to the mining industry doesn't help out our score too much either.
0: Yeah. And I mentioned that Labor fares a little bit better than Libs in terms of their targets. And the Greens want net zero carbon emissions by 2035, which shaves 15 years off the Paris Agreement. Um, but it's important, not just on a federal level, but on a local level. This is a very localised issue. So it involves councils that regulate tourism and how they play a huge part in mitigating climate risk in landscapes like the reef, even if they can't change emissions.
1: Yeah, so it's definitely up to the federal government to create these overarching policies, but it feeds through to the state and local governments in a big way also. Yeah, And just before we leave this discussion about policy, I want to go back to this point about mining. So mining makes up 74% of Australia's emissions, which is Clearly, a huge chunk, um, but it also makes up twenty percent of our export value in our economy. Also, a pretty big chunk. Um, where I live at the moment is a major mining hub in North Queensland, and mining is equals livelihoods up here. You know, there's not many options for a job. It employs mm. a huge amount of the people that live here, and to so many people that live in remote Australia, mining is the centre point of their work and cultural lives. So while it's easy to say that mining is bad for the environment, etc., which I clearly agree with, I understand the science, as we all do, um, we also need to recognise that if we're ever going to move away from mining, we need to introduce policies that create viable alternatives. You know, Those jobs need to be replaced or these towns will die off.
0: Yeah, and I think it proves even more that the federal government, yes, can set a target, but they need local support as well. And funny that you bring up mining because one of the major talking points that really highlights this tension between policy and reality in recent years has been the Adani coal mine. You may have heard of it, but if you're unaware of this, um, this is a coal mine currently under construction by the Adani group in the Galilee Basin in central Queensland, sort of near where Vernissa is at the moment, and it edges near some coast towns such as Townsville uh, and Mackay, and it's also quite close to the Barrier Reef as well
1: yeah a huge proportion of my students have parents that work in the basin and it's massive it's around the size of Victoria mm. um, a lot less people live in it though and it contains a lot of valuable coal that can be used you know to power power plants in India and all of these countries around the world so from an economic standpoint it's quite a big project in terms of our national exports and revenue. And also a huge project to boost employment, not only for those in the mining industry, which is an estimated 1,500 jobs, but also those in construction who can help develop the mine, um, which is a part of the 6,000 indirect jobs that could be created as a result of the mine.
0: Yeah, so it's a constant battle of weighing up pros and cons here. Um, But the big issue here is its impacts upon our climate. So back in 2019, when the mine was being proposed, the Climate Council estimated that the mines in the Galilee Basin, because there's a few there, including Adani, could lead to an additional 705 million tonnes of carbon dioxide emitted per year when that coal is eventually burnt. So this is 1.3 times the amount of emissions from Australia as a whole. So it's a huge amount of
1: emissions being released here. Yeah, an insane amount, really. Um, And where the Adani coal mine was really hit was in the most recent elections. It was a huge, huge talking point. And the Labor Party, which was then run by Bill Shorten, had made its position on Adani very unclear. So it didn't offer clear-cut support, but it didn't criticise it as well. It was a very weak position in a lot of ways. But this, in turn, cost them a lot of voters in Queensland mining centres, where the Labour Party was hoping for a big swing of seats to get them over the line. Yep. I remember watching this election and seeing the seats in Queensland just fall liberal, 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 and yeah, this is literally why.
0: Yeah, and we've spoken briefly about the loss of identity for the Labor Party. And this is a prime example. When we think back to the days of um, Bob Hawke, who was so big within the trade unions, um, the Labor Party traditional- traditionally represented the blue collar, true blue workers of Australia. And it had very strong ties with the mining industry and by not offering its clear cut support for Adani, the Labor Party seemed to alienate a lot of that old school supporter base, and there's a really big chasm here within the party between you know the environmental side and wanting to you know dedicate itself to climate change policy, but also the industrial side that wants to support industry and trade and its traditional supporters, and we can see how badly this divide cost them the election that, mind you, it was stated as Labor's election to win. Um, there was so much rhetoric about the 2019 election being a liberal win for the ages. You know, this was a classic underdog win, the the impossible win in many ways. And it's because they really alienated a lot of that support with their unclear position on Adani and mining
1: yeah, and it's not hard to see why there's that divide. This case study can be applied for lots of areas around Australia, but in this example, the basin makes a huge proportion of the income for the state of Queensland and for the country generally, and they feel forgotten about, you know, they taken advantage of by the city people of the Labour Party. And it's a real tricky situation. It's this is the big problem in climate change where you've got long-term policy that really, really needs to be enacted, but there's also the short-term policy where families need jobs and somewhere to live and all these sorts of things. And the trick is just getting them working together.
0: Okay. So realistically, what can we do about climate change now? Are targets of reducing by 50%
1: realistic? So it's pretty difficult to talk about the future when the current Liberal government is quite literally being scrutinised by global leaders and intergovernmental bodies for our poor climate change policy. So it's been quite publicised that Australia is one of the only OECD countries that hasn't committed to net zero carbon emissions by 2050. Um, it's kind of a topic that Scott Morrison yeah. seems to avoid like the plague. And his responses to our climate crisis have been rather questionable, not necessarily controversial, but um, again. Again, just week. Yeah, just a week. And there are
0: other options that he could have ran to, but the ones that he has chosen seem to be garnering some debate. And so what ScoMo and his current government proposed to attempt to reduce carbon emissions was by investing in these so-called low-emission technologies. Um, they're relatively new on the scene and there has been debate as to whether these methods are effective so the 2020 budget invested a lot of money into areas such as carbon capture and storage, which quite literally means capturing carbon emissions in the air and storing them in large basins underground. So we're still going to create the
1: emissions, but we're just going to trap them yeah. and hide we're just them going away. going to them before they run loose. <laughs> Oh my god, it's crazy. Um, there's also some talk about green hydrogen and clean steel. And whilst these may contribute to a reduction in emissions, a senior official of the Biden administration warns that our investment in this area is not enough to drive down emissions to net zero by 2050. And the Sydney Morning Herald stated that there's no guarantee how quickly new technologies will reach the point where they can compete with fossil fuels. So for something like climate change that requires an urgent, rapid, strong response, um, we seem to be approaching this not at all like a race, <laughs> which is similar to some other things, but we're not going to dwell on that. Yeah. Um, but maybe the government should learn to just run a little bit faster. Yeah, and I think that po- that point that the Sydney
0: Morning Herald makes about it's not enough to overcome fossil fuels just shows how much is involved in climate change policy and it does require quite a big overhaul of the processes that are already in place, you know, for, for example, extracting coal and using coal as a prime source of energy. Um, in contrast, we see a lot of other countries deciding to interfere with the market, which, mind you, is directly what the Liberal government doesn't want to do. And they've introduced things such as carbon taxes and regulations. Um, you may have a bit of a fever dream of the time when our former Prime Minister, Julia Gillard, introduced a carbon tax. I remember being so young, but I still vividly um, have moments of memories where I just hear carbon tax in my brain. So it was definitely- I'm literally the same. <laughs> I, I must have been like, 10 years younger than we were um, Mm. right now. But I remember it, but it was eventually overturned. And in in hindsight, these carbon taxes are actually what most countries are doing nowadays. Um, I think the UK, South Korea, places like that have introduced a carbon tax which would actually send a bit of a warning to some businesses to cut emissions and reap from the profits of doing this.
1: Yeah, I saw Julia Gillard talk a couple of years ago um, and she spoke about the carbon tax and she said, I was right, we should have had a carbon tax.
0: (laughs) She was and she was so heavily criticised for it and no one believed in her but she she was on the right track there. We're
1: going to do a Julia
0: Gillard episode one day. We do, we talk about her quite a bit. (laughs) And now it's time for our
1: recommendation. So, Vanessa, what have you got for our listeners and I today? So, I've got an article from The New Yorker, and this might sound really negative, but I promise it's not. It's about what happens if we don't solve the climate crisis. And it's it's about how we can create um, a healthy, equal world regardless, and what we need to do um, as on a smaller scale to move through this crisis altogether. It's actually a bit of a heartwarming read. Okay. Well,
0: I think that would help with a lot of, I guess, the anxiety that people might be feeling at the moment. And I don't know about you, but there is a bit of sense of doom in all of this. So maybe that's a good recommendation if you're feeling like that. My recommendation is by far my all-time favourite book. I think I've recommended this to all of my friends. It's called The Sixth Extinction by Elizabeth Colbert, and she is a climate change journalist, so it's a very captivating read. She's a great writer. And it's about the Anthropocene, you know, this point in time that is now being marked about um, by man-made impact on the earth. And in her book, she travels to different parts of the earth. I think she goes to Alaska, she goes to the Mediterranean, she goes to the rainforest in Brazil, and she looks at those smaller minuscule effects of climate change that we might not be able to see, um, not for a little while anyway. So definitely one of my favourite reads, and we'll leave some links to those in our show notes. That's it from us today. Thank you so much for listening. Um, We hope you enjoyed this episode. Let us know what you
1: think. This is an issue that affects all of us and we're interested to hear your position as always. In the meantime, follow us for more short, sweet and simple Aussie content on Instagram at Australia Explained Pod. You'll be a thousand and something. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. and we appreciate everyone who joins us. So we will see you in two
0: weeks time. Bye. Bye, everyone.